Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. Pop, I'm getting married. <laughs> it's a girl. I met her at school. It's this wonderful... Uh, what, what are you... Are you upset? But let me tell you why. Don't I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. The birdcage is over. It's time for some peasant soup. Are you crazy? You can't get married. It's out of the question. We've been sleeping together for a year. Oh, God. Has he been tested? Oh, Kevin. Yes, and so have I. Uh, who's his father? His father is in the arts. You do an eclectic celebration of the dance. You do fussy, fussy, fussy. You do Martha Graham, Martha Graham, Martha Graham. Or Madonna, Madonna, Madonna. But you keep it all inside. What does the mother do? She's a housewife. All right, this was your first time with the birdcage. Shamedly carrying that shame with you for uh, since 1996. Bearing that badge of never having seen the birdcage. Andy, what'd you think? First of all, let me just say that that uh, 24 years this movie has been around, and I just want to say, watching this for the first time, it really made me sad that Robin Williams is gone. Oh, like, it God. really hit me watching this. I'm like, oh. uh, that just breaks my heart. Yeah. Every time yeah. I think about that, it is just so hard. Absolutely. Yeah. It is just tragic, particularly in this movie. Because, Well, I'm interrupting you. We're going to talk about that. Finish talking about the rest of it. Go ahead. <laughs> go. Finish. I mean, it, it's a tricky movie to watch 
Um, this is, you know, it, it ties into some offline conversations we were having with people about watching movies in movie theaters uh, over on our Discord channels where we were chatting with some of our listeners about kind of what, uh, you know, do you watch stuff in theaters still or are you watching online, especially with this whole COVID-19 thing going on and all the movie theaters closed and concerned about movie theaters opening again. And comedy was definitely one of the ones that people say it definitely affects your viewing when you're watching comedy films, horror films. There were certain ones that really seemed to work better in big rooms of people all laughing at the same time. And this was one of those films, and I could definitely feel it, where I was like, I can see where we'd all be laughing at this right now. And here I am sitting by myself watching this for the first time, not laughing. And I'm like, okay, uh, you know, it worked. I thought it worked fine for me, uh, just like the the previous one did. Um, but I just, I couldn't help but feel that there's a reason that this was so popular at the time it came out. And that's just because of the group experience of watching it with a bunch of people all laughing together. Okay, I'm sad about that so far. I'll just say I'm <laughs> starting with the bar very low. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I could see your point. And I definitely had the benefit of sitting down and watching it with my daughter. And it was the first time that she saw it. And um and and we went through the whole roller coaster and it was uh it was actually it was great it was great all of the things that i was worried i was going to have a problem with th- those things turned out to be great we had a a a fun time the the dinner sequence at the end was all of the kinds of comedy that you want the pain comedy the agonizing pain comedy the discomfort comedy the awkward comedy the straight-out slapstick comedy, all of the comedies were there, were represented, were accounted for. Uh, and, and so all of that, it, it, was, it was funny. I enjoyed it. The things I was worried about coming off of La Cage Folle, which, I, again, I thought was, was a, a great experience, um, was, you know, how does it uh, hold up? How does the American remake hold up in the time and the place and... Uh, you know, how does that compare to what was going on in France <laughs> and and Saint-Tropez, how it how it was representative of that sort of bohemian lifestyle and uh, and and that sort of culture clash? Would that play up? And I didn't remember some of the details, like the time and place details of this movie when we talked about it last week. And it all came back in a rush thinking about Bob Dole and the moral majority and this thing taking place uh, in Miami. Uh, they they just crushed it, I, it to me. I mean, the, the cultural stuff they just crushed uh, in this movie. And I think that's one of the reasons that it, it actually holds up. Uh, as well as it does, um, that that it its time and place is actually sort of manifest destiny uh, for American political culture and and um, conservative culture and what this movie is attempting to do. So for me, I, I just ugh, it was a win, and I'm I am crying on the I'm keeping it on the inside, but I'm crying for you that you did not have a crowd. <laughs> well, let's just I mean a few more points. I I feel like. There's definitely a difference between the two films. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, I, I watched some, uh, I can't remember who the interview is with, but there's an interview on the Criterion version of La Caja Fall with uh, a critic about the endurance of that film. And I think he said something about The Birdcage, and I can't remember, I didn't write down what he said, but I feel like it was something like, oh, here he said it was a, 
uh, mindless copy. And I think he might have said it was like more of uh, more exploitation, but I can't remember. But anyway, I didn't feel it was a mindless copy. I think Elaine May is a smart writer. Mike Nichols, mm-hmm. I think, is a a great director. I think the two of them, I mean, obviously there's a history there that's worth talking about at some point, know how to bring out the best of each other. And I think there are definitely some signs of some real smart comedy going on in here. I don't think it's a mindless copy. That being said, I, they, they definitely fleshed it out. This was a full half hour longer. And I will say, I was really surprised how faithful of a remake it was. Like, I was surprised. I, I, don't, I don't know why. I mean, generally remakes are, but I, I feel like now we're at a weird place where remakes, when you remake something, there's something that you really have to twist, right? You have to kind of do something so it's not just a straight-up remake anymore. That's the thing Mm -hmm. now. It wasn't necessarily a thing in 1996 when a remake was just a remake, and you're just basically telling the same story, albeit expanded. I, I, I felt in the first film that, you know, the farce came through, the comedy came through. I read that really nicely. And I feel like in the remake, that came through as well. I could tell that there was comedy there. I enjoyed what they were doing with it, even if I wasn't laughing out loud. The thing I really struggled with it, uh, and and it was very frustrating for me, is in the first film, I really liked the son, um, uh, Laurent, I believe was his name. I mm-hmm. found him to be a much more likable character. His ask, as awkward as it is, and and as potentially hateful and hurtful as it is to ask his dad and his uh, his uh, other dad to play straight for this situation and to not be yourselves it it never felt that mean and, and weirdly it came across like we just have to do this because i love this woman and it it i mean it came across okay in this film i don't know if it was dan futterman as playing Val, the son, or the way that the script portrayed him, I read him as so much more selfish and so much more, I just, I struggled with his character feeling like he didn't really like who his his dad and his other dad were. And I that made me struggle with this film a lot more. And it was that character. I just, I, I didn't like the read and the way that it played. It just, it did not work for me. It didn't. It didn't aggravate me to the point of just like not liking the character. But I do agree with you. There is something about this character, uh, the way Futterman plays him, that that sort of increases the obliviousness at how important the ask is. Right, the selfishness yes. of his part that he's just not aware of what that's going to do to his parents. Right, and. And and I think the the problem with that is that let's just say it's it's a it is a character read. The the, the struggle is that he was raised for twenty years by these two people. Yeah, I just straight up don't believe that he would not have a greater sense of sensitivity to this to to what this means and how important this is. Right, like he seems I, exasperated. Yes, exasperated. That's a great word for it. I do think that what he gave them, Nathan Lane and Robin Williams were able to to sort of digest and and portray the appropriate level of sort of frustration 
to, you know, to balance that out for me. I think I, I don't think there were I, I had any problems with the transition to to these two guys uh, for these two important parts. But I, I do see what you're saying. And if there is a weakness in the film for me, it's absolutely in uh, in Futterman's portrayal of the sun. And I would say a kind of, you know, uh, I, I would say um, meek portrayal by Callista Flockhart of, uh, you know, the young Barbara, which I, I just I, I felt like the kids were meager on the plate it, it, and there was there was more opportunity for both of them. So that was a huge struggle for me, too, with Callista, too. Like at the beginning, when she's talking to her parents, it didn't even feel like she was lying. It felt like she was just completely misinformed by her yeah. boyfriend, the way she was talking. And I'm like, <laughs> right. Is, does she as the actress know she's supposed to play like she's covering something up because right. she just feels like she's just saying what her boyfriend said <laughs> it read so weirdly and i was like yes. God. and so i felt like they put all of the stock for the film in the four major leads right in yes. and, uh we have robin williams nathan lane uh gene hackman and diane weist all of them so good in this film. Yes. And then you have these kids that are the core of the drama. And right. I was just like, oh, this is this is the huge weak link of this film. They were just so flat and frustrating. And Dan Futterman, oh, I just hated him so much through this whole film. <laughs> I'm I am sorry to hear that you hated him because I, I didn't I guess I didn't feel that strongly about it, but I do agree. And here's the thing about Calista Flockhart, because I we were big Ally McBeal fans. Sure. And so after we watched this movie, I put on uh, an episode of Ally McBeal and Dancing we watched Baby. through it. No, it was not Dancing no, Baby, Dancing but it Baby. was a season one. Um, and I, I realized that she's the same. She's the same character in that movie in that show too. <laughs> and what's delightful about Ally McBeal is everyone playing around Ally McBeal. Right? It's all of the other just wackadoodle characters that they introduced to that show. It's not her. She is the drippy character in this in this yeah. show. I was just not into it. So I, I felt like okay. I get it. I get now. I get it. She has a role to play and a, a place to fill. And I, it's I'm, I'm learning to say things like, yeah, it's not for me. This in, in this movie, it, it's kind of a significant miss because you you want to care for the kids. If you don't care for the kids and what they're going through and the absolute pickle that she, she Barbara, has put all of them in. Yeah. Then it loses some of the weight. <laughs> on the journey like right. like pieces luggage is falling off of the of the cart uh, along I w- the way and i wonder if that is when you have i don't want to call them old but older uh filmmakers at the time elaine may and mike nichols i mean certainly they were they were the kids age probably back in the 50s and 60s when they first kind of hit the scene right right, right. and now at this point in the in the mid 90s when they're making this film i felt like they were really connected to all the adult characters and maybe they just really struggled doing much with the kids because they just don't even feel that well fleshed out like they could right. have been they could have done a lot more with her as a character yeah i i think so and and i so i really appreciate that you're bringing this part particular angle to me because i didn't give it any thought at all (laughs) once i realized i was disappointed i just sort of moved on and i i took a lot more joy in the stuff that that i uh, that was familiar and fun and and in in particular um you know uh, robin williams nathan lane (laughs) and please tell me you have something kind to say about hank azaria as agador spartacus 
Good evening. I am Spartacus, the Goldman's butler. Please come, come in. Wow, what a character. Hank Zaria. <laughs> you know, it is it's so over the top, but it felt honest. It felt real. It never felt like he was doing it in a way that was meant to be kind of a demeaning caricature. It felt big and broad and it fit kind of this this broad level of comedy that they're doing here, but it always worked. And I mean, I I I mean the initial or the first character that we had in Lacage, uh, whose name was I can't remember, was it Jacob? Was that Jacob in that Jacob, one? Jacob, yeah, yeah, it was Jacob. I I thought he was great too, but if there was a character that could have used more time, it was Jacob, and they gave it to him in the form of Hank Azaria, and he was great. He was just so fun in this movie, just a blast. There was originally only one scene uh, for Hank Azaria, and he was, uh, they expanded the role. Uh, uh, apparently, Nichols had seen Azaria in Quiz Show and really liked him and said, uh, you well, know, there's I'm, a I'm jump. <laughs> right? <laughs> You're great in that drama, playing the guy in the suit. <laughs> All right. Now, what if you're just in jean shorts for a whole film? Can <laughs> you picture that? <laughs> yeah, <right. sighs> um, and, and so, uh, so he's, he brought him on to do this one scene, and then a month later said, you know, we've expanded the role, and they gave him just, I, I think it was just a, a perfect amount to to uh, to do on screen, uh, all the way through <laughs> the, the, the real sort of uh, Three's Company-esque kind of shenanigans that take place in, during the meal, I think w- it was executed really, really well. What the hell are you serving us? Sweet and sour pasta soup. What'd you say is seafood chowder for? What the hell is sweet and sour pasta soup? I don't know. I made it up. I made it up. He's always been a great comedian anyway. It's just so much of it is buried in Simpsons characters where it's just all the voice performances. Yeah. But you see some of the stuff that he's done over his career and you're like, you know what? This guy obviously is a guy who who knows comedy and knows how to do it well. I mean, if anyone could have brought, you know, the Smurfs Gargamel to life... (laughs) Yeah, in a way that worked. Right. It's Hank Azaria. I mean, he actually did it, and I'm sure. I mean, people are gonna, you know, write us if we don't mention Mystery Men because, of course, he was one of the team there, um, yeah. and uh, in all of his, in all of his glory in that particular film. No, I mean he's he is just a very funny actor, and I think that he does some great stuff. And uh, I mean, Dodgeball, he was in that. Um, but he's also one of those guys who does a good job of of balancing across the drum, dramatic lines as well. So, yeah, I just I love him. And, uh, yeah, what a thrill to just kind of see what he did here. Um, it, it's a whole new side of Hank's area that I hadn't uh, had not had in my life before. It was it, it is it is exactly what I needed it to be because I was so nervous watching this movie again. Is this still funny? Well, uh, and it's very think... funny. In an interview with Larry King, he says uh, King says, was was it Birdcage that made you? Uh, yes, it is still what I'm known for. I have never heard a single negative comment. Uh, that was just a couple of years ago. So that was great. Um, but yeah, I think that great. speaks to Elaine May and Mike Nichols having a better handle on the adult characters, because even Christine Baronski, as uh, the former uh, you know female lover of Robin Williams's mm-hmm. character, um, she was great too. Like I really enjoyed her. And now, granted. As a character in the French film, she also had a little more meat than the kids. I mean, we're saying all this. We have we should acknowledge the kids were a little flat in the French film too. Mm-hmm. 
So it's not like, uh, you know, they, you know, were working with great characters that they really diminished. But considering what they did with some of these other characters, I just would have liked to have seen them really bring Val and uh, Barb uh, up a little bit more. Well, and to be fair, I... I said earlier that if you can't buy the the pickle that Barbara has put us in, then, you know, the the rest of the movie sort of loses its weight. And I imagine people are listening to that saying, no, nah, I disagree that, in fact, this movie is really about the relationship of these adults. The movie is about the sort of cultural conflict between these two uh, ideologies. That the, It is about getting old. It's about being old and gay. It's about, um, you know, what happens when we age and how we look and how we feel about how we look and all of those things are primary to this other story which is the setup which is what just gets us into this thing and so i would like to to live for just a few minutes in a universe uh in which you don't care about the kids anymore and that we can just pretend that the rest of the movie is all that exists. <laughs> I'd love to. I think the problem I have is that they gave so much more to Val as a character, and he's just in it a lot more, and he just always seems irritated with uh, his dads, and it just it makes it more frustrating for me. I, and, and I would say, I think the, big, the uh, biggest frustration that I have, this sort of emotional betrayal that I feel every time he's on screen with Robin Williams, is that the, the angle you can feel, if it's not in the text, it's in the subtext, is is don't tell Albert about this thing. Get Albert out and get yeah. And that is the thing on reflection of La Caja Full that I also have a problem with. And I just didn't didn't see it until I watch it here. Right. That right. this was a relationship between his two dads of 20 years raising him, caring for him, loving him. And now is the time he decides to be a complete jerk. And I right. I struggle with that. So let's moving moving through my trouble with that that piece um i i'm curious how you feel about williams and lane in these parts well and that's a great place to kind of continue our conversations about these relationships we've talked about the kids now we have armand and albert as this couple in this film as compared to renato and albin in the previous one yeah i you know i i think that williams and lane pull off a solid relationship. I buy their on-screen relationship. I think it has the heart that it needed to. I you know, I I it's it's tricky because Armand and Renato in both films both have a kind of this this edge to the character that makes them a little hard to like. But I think that Williams is just easier to like than Renato or the character playing the actor playing Renato. So I feel Ugo. like I feel like they work pretty well in this particular film. And I mean, Lane, I mean, just seriously, he's just he's just so good. The part of Armand was uh, or of Albert was offered to Robin Williams. And um, I uh, I thought that was interesting because that's that's exactly what I would imagine going to Robin Williams. Like had I had I not known that Doubtfire existed. <laughs> Right. right. This would be the part for Robin Williams. And and he, in fact, remembered that Doubtfire existed and said, no, I've been in drag. I'd like to do something different. And uh, so he ended up taking sort of the, the straight man role. And that opened up this other part. Now, originally, had Williams been the part of Albert, then Steve Martin was uh, on deck to play the, the part of Armand. And frankly, I can see that, too. That's that's not a hard that's not a hard ask for my. Um, you know, recast imagination. Uh, 
However, yeah, Nathan Lane, man, Nathan Lane is so good. And he had just come off of, right? I mean, his, his thing was, uh, Lion King, right? That was the big one. And that same, that the year prior, he was the desk sergeant in Adam's family values, right? I mean, he, yeah, it was really it, stage is what, where he was yes. more known rather than, than film. And I think this is where it kind of switched for him. Yeah, this movie made Nathan Lane, and and, and it is it's absolutely uh, you know where I feel like I got to know him. He was he's just transcendent in being able to embody this character and and do it in a way that really honors the character, not as you know a, a, not as the stereotype, but as as you know a, a man in a committed relationship and a father, and you know all of the other stuff is glitter, but there is substance here, and and I I felt that I, I felt a strong connection to him. It's interesting looking at his work. I know I don't feel like he ever has found really kind of home in film. I mean, I think he still does film and certainly a lot of voice work because of playing Timon in The Lion King, as you said. But I feel like most of the work that he does, it's it's just like bit character parts. And I think the bulk of his stuff is still stage like that's his home. It'll be interesting to see. I I am uh, eager to watch Penny Dreadful City of Angels. That's his new um, series, small screen series. And the trailer looks amazing. Huh. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm excited now that, you know, his what I've been watching him on is his, you know, sort of recurring character on uh, Modern Family, which is always fun uh, and funny and kind of a throwback. Pepper Saltzman is kind of a throwback uh, to Albert here uh, in in some ways and uh, a little bit more sophisticated, a little bit more gray, um, uh, but ha- has some has some parallels, some similarities to it. Yes, which is fun. But I think this I I think you have a that's a good point. And and I I miss uh, apart from, you know, Max Bialystok, uh, (laughs) you know, on film. I really do. I I have such a connection with Nathan Lane and I sort of wish there were more of those roles that we could we could recall as easily as this one. Yeah, right. Uh, I mean, I, I feel like just looking through the work that he's done in film i mean it's 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 you know very cartoonish sort of characters like mouse hunt which i mean he was mm-hmm. very fun in but uh, and then big like i mean in nicholas nickleby he was uh, i think that he works really well in dickens sorts of characters because they're also big broad sorts of characters like right. i feel like that's really kind of what he's getting with a lot of the films that he gets and you know it's fine i think he does a great job in those roles so i'm mm-hmm. i'm happy to just see him you know, since I don't get to really watch Broadway shows, uh, I'm thrilled that I do get to at least see him in those. Now, obviously, this was a nostalgic uh, romp through Robin Williams land. Mm. Uh, and and it's a little bit bittersweet because, again, you know, if you if you sort of imagine um, the the identity of Robin Williams, there's there are little pieces, little glimmers of the non-straight man Robin Williams, the stream of consciousness Robin Williams, the Martha Graham, Martha Graham, Martha Graham, you know? <laughs> fussy, when he gets fussy, 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 Martha fussy. Graham, Martha Graham. <laughs> <laughs> those, those bits are, are sort of few and far between, and, uh, and so I missed that. And yet, uh, this is, uh, to me, it's one of those performances that just is a great reminder of, of what an incredible dramatic performer he is. 
Yeah, right. I mean, just what a broad range. And just from the moments uh, with the more of the kind of the slapstick comedy in this film to that moment where where the two of them are sitting on the bench in front of the the mm-hmm. Carnival Cruise Line going by. Uh, it just it was very it, it was touching. Like, I just I, I feel like he worked well in this relationship and, and it felt like there was a relationship between these two guys. So I really like that. We came down last week and and felt like La Caja Foll was was respectful of the the sort of cultural identity of these flamboyantly gay characters uh, and didn't didn't do any sort of disrespect to them and it actually has enough story there that it 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 went beyond kind of the the drag show the drag queen show and and it was it was good uh, do you feel like this movie um, you know it is in in some respects more flamboyant. Uh, but do you feel like it went too far anywhere? You know, I I don't think so. I feel like again, it's it's a broad comedy. Obviously, you are taking things to the extreme, and I think that that works. I feel like, uh, and they did it on on both sides. I mean, we haven't even talked about the Keelys yet, but yeah. I think they do a great job in this film, just like the previous film, of pushing both of these couples into the far extreme corners to allow for all of the fun conflicts to arise. I mean, um, it was just genius watching uh, Hackman and Weist playing those two characters because they. Just just both felt so authentic in those in the roles. It was really amazing casting, I think, for those two. And so I feel like they're allowing the comedy to be the comedy, but I still felt like there was an honest relationship between Armand and Albert. I really enjoyed it. I felt like it was authentic. They have their struggles, just like Renato and Albin did in the previous film. And I, I mean, I will say, we didn't bring this up last week, at least Robin Williams' his character doesn't beat his his spouse like in the previous yeah. film. I was a little surprised by that in that film. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, I, I I did find that there was still the the authentic heart here, and so to that end. And again, I go back to the comment that the the critic said about the last this being a mindless copy. I don't think it is. I think that there is more um, to it than just a mindless copy. I don't know if it was necessary, but I don't think it was a mindless copy. <laughs> I don't know if it was necessary. Um, yeah, that's another. Uh, that was another one that I found. Rotten Tomatoes said a fun but not quite essential remake of the French Italian comedy La Cage Folle, and I was so frustrated by that because, uh, you know, <laughs> what is essential? You know, shouldn't yeah. we be making the exact same argument about RottenTomatoes.com? Like it, it is, <laughs> it's too easy uh, to to say that. I don't, I don't know what is essential. I think what this movie did was take essentially um, a, a you know a translation of the the French film and do something with it that was unique and uh, added other layers to it that I think give us some uh, a, a new sort of perspective of the same story. And I think that was I think it was actually quite good. My my question, though, around that is, you know, when you look at at um, Francis Weber, let's just get rid of the non-essential part. Right. Why was this one one of the easy ones to to, you know, redo to look at his catalog and say, oh, you know what? We need to make remake this. 
Well, and this is going to be something that I think will be interesting to kind of continue in this conversation over the course of this series because of the fact that Weber has had such a large number of his films remade or has remade them himself in you know, multiple languages. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's really interesting. And I feel like, obviously, La Caja Fall uh, is set, was such a big film. It was uh, arguably uh, uh, Weber's most well-known film, perhaps. Perhaps mm-hmm. most, um, the one that has lingered the longest. I think that might be uh, something else. It's one that has, you know, really found a home. Like, I don't think that many people were going, pure luck. Oh, man, there's a genius a genius film that, uh, <laughs> that we all uh, can't live without anymore. But I feel like this is an obvious place to start because it's it's a big one and it led to uh, a big success in America. There's something about the translation of his comedy, and I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing the next one now when we talk about that because mm-hmm. it just it, he has tapped into a style of comedy that goes beyond language. I think there are certain comedies that it feels like it's a very French comedy. It's probably not going to translate well. It's a very American comedy. It's probably not going to translate well, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. He's tapped into something that I think feels very human. And I think it's easy to translate. I think for both of these countries, right, they found, uh, you know, what was going on in Saint-Tropez in France. There was a great corollary to that experience in the late 90s in Miami as a representation of that lifestyle and the conflict of that lifestyle with the with the the moral majority in the United States and what that represented and that's something that is perhaps unique to sort of western movie viewers um you know because every country has their own thing but here we have a direct parallel <laughs> right this is this is easy and obvious to to make this connection and um and and so it's 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 home for us, like home turf. And I, I think that's one of the things that makes it uh, that makes it resonate. So that was um, one of my notes, the transition of the Coalition for Moral Order from that film to this film. It worked really well. It was like it worked really well. How well yeah. that transition, <laughs> transition worked. So talk a little bit about that. And maybe that's another uh, a good way to talk more about Gene Hackman. It's just, I mean, like you said, I felt like there in in America, there was definitely this push to kind of create this moral sensibilities again. And uh, I mean, I think that, you know, they bring up Bob Dole and, you know, they're obviously they're they're hoping to go stay on the island with Jeb Bush and his family. It's yeah. it's very much a part of the story that we get here. And it it works. It fits in really nicely. Because Gene Hackman and Diane Weiss, they just feel very much like these uh, these kind of stuffy people who are pushing for morality. And I, I felt like they just laid into that so, so well. And Hackman, my God, when the reveal happens at the end and he is just so confused, he plays that so well. I just don't, I don't understand. I just don't. I don't understand. Like he, I was like, oh, only Hackman could do this so brilliantly, and yes. it all came across. And then when he was in drag and trying to escape, like he looked like a little lost puppy. Like he just, he really pulled off the whole thing in a way that I was just like, I was so impressed with him all the way through because I felt like he fit so perfectly in that side of the story. 
The, I, I think his line in that last scene, the escape scene, where he says, uh, you know, don't don't leave me. I don't want to be the only one not dancing. <laughs> <laughs> has so much weight to it so much political weight comic weight emotional weight dramatic weight like that line meant so much to me as i watched this movie the other one that i think is a is a, a quite an improvement a very small change but quite an improvement for me in the uh, the original film he comes out and is screaming at the chauffeur it's me it's me can't you yes. tell it's me and and that was terrible it was like not it, it didn't play uh, off on the joke it leaves us in a kind of a rotten mood uh and this one uh he gets in the car in in dragon he says to the chauffeur you know in in well, an he gets, hour he gets in Baronsky's a, car yeah he gets in Baronsky's car and he, he says you know meet me in an hour at this address and the guy says you know lady not for a million bucks or something like that <laughs> right and they drive off which was perfect it was the perfect light way to end this movie about heavy things and and so i thought it was deceptively sophisticated little tweak i couldn't agree more i had the same note about that because the previous film it felt like it ended on it ended on the punchline but story-wise it ended in a really awkward way where you're like okay but now like the press is right there he's now yeah. identified himself as yes i'm the guy in drag i just escaped help me I'm like it it sets up a situation that they're they don't answer they just move into the the final scene but it puts us into a question with the story now that that doesn't work whereas this it was just so much smarter it was a really clean way to end it I I one more note on the the sort of um the way the US and Miami and our own cultural m maturity uh exists compared to the French version of the movie. And the French, what did we, it was 1978, 76? 78. 78. 78. The, the so play 78, was 73. 73 to 78 to 96 in the U.S. I found it so interesting that as they did this adaptation to modernize it for nearly 20 years later, that the great violation of the ideological right in this movie is when he gets the phone call, the initial phone call that his partner, his co-host and co-chair of this Committee for Moral Order has been found dead in the bed of a prostitute, a prostitute that was underage, a prostitute that was underage and black. Mm -hmm. And that we are nearly 20 years reeling over the exact same circumstances that didn't have to be changed at all from nearly 20 years prior, I thought was so interesting that that is, that is a thing that is, it's almost a timeless slight. <laughs> it is a slight that just keeps on giving again and again and again uh, to, to the, for the Coalition of Moral Order. And I thought that was, it was just, it was perfect. It was just a juicy um, a bit of, of comedy that works so well, but such an, an interesting comparison between these things that those that was a piece that they felt like they didn't need to touch yeah to right. update this movie how do you feel uh, that was an area where they did a bit more of expanding as far as the the length of the script we have right. more about that drama a lot of news stories we have leno who pops in to do a cameo we have an interview with the young prostitute like there's more stuff going on here and i was like i don't know if it really is helping i mean it didn't hurt it i guess but i I wasn't sure if it was necessary. What was your thought? Well, I, I had that thought because they spent a lot of time, too, showing much more press, right? There yeah. was a lot more press. And and I thought that was um, 
that was an interesting choice. Like, you know, really doubling down on how much how, you know, much of uh, what kind of a role the press played in uh, this particular chase mm-hmm. and ultimate, you know, what we have to imagine undoing. I really liked it because I thought it was a it, it was sort of central to the maturing of the story over time. Right. There are just there. They have to show us cell phones because there are cell phones and the act of having cell phones changes the way the press can react. And that is central to how they report. So you kind of don't have a choice Mm. to to update the story the way it does, because, of course, the National uh, Enquirer is going to be there. And of course, the network news is going to be there shortly after because cell phones, right? Mm -hmm. They have to catch up. So I actually felt like it was okay, and and I liked the little interviews. I I feel like the, um, you know, the cameos uh, were, I I don't know who those were for. I I don't feel like they were for me. Uh, But if they were for Elaine and Mike, uh, then have a ball. Go for it. Um, the the interesting one to me, you actually made a point uh, of of mentioning they did do a cutaway to an interview with the underage prostitute uh, played yeah. by uh, Trina McGee, um, who who gets one line in this movie, but uh, she's been in uh, she's been in a bunch of other stuff. If you have ever watched Boy Meets World, like we did, oh, really. Yeah, she was a regular in that show, so it was uh, it was oh, funny, funny to 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 see her uh, all grown sort of up in, <laughs> in <interesting. laughs> all grown. still a winner, but yeah, <laughs> so, very different sort um, of role. Uh, I, I thought it was interesting that they actually cut to her. That was something that they did not do in La Caja Full. They did yeah. not show quote the the underage victim, so to speak. Yeah, what do you think of that? Well, that's what I was saying. Like, I, I didn't know if they needed these different parts, like cutting to her and stuff. Like, I, I felt like it was extra fluff in the story that I didn't feel it necessarily helped. I guess to your point, though, what it does do is it emphasizes how big all of this stuff is blown up by the press and just how it turns into just like this enormous story. I mean, obviously, if that happened, it would be a pretty big story. So I I get that. But it really plays up the scope of it in the film. Mm -hmm. I mean, Leno, Leno, everybody is talking about it, you know. That's the public service of the movie, right? Talking about this is what popular culture is. This is yeah. transcended news and it's now pop culture. And I think that's a that is just as much of an element of this film as as anything else. Because look at the club that they own. The club that they own is is every bit an element of popular culture, right? You might feel shame going in there, but when she turns around and says, Now who's celebrating their anniversary tonight? And it's that conservative looking white couple, right. an elderly couple in the front row, like that's telling a part of that story too. A few random points that I just want to uh, rattle off real quick. All right. Um, I could not believe for a film made in 1996 that the process shots of the driving scenes, they are some of the worst that I have ever seen. <laughs> like when when Senator Keeley like cuts across all the lanes of traffic to get off the road, that felt like worse than TV um, process shots. It was yeah, just Yeah, it was straight out so of Dukes of Hazard season one. Wow. <laughs> it was not good. Just terrible stuff. Um, a few little Elaine May bits that I really enjoyed. I did like when Leno is like, coming up after the break, Yasser Arafat and Kate Moss. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's a pair. 
Um, then there's the secretary reading Nietzsche, which I thought yes. was kind of Delightful. odd. And then I loved that when they're redecorating Armand's house, uh, Armand and Albert's house, they put up the entire Nancy Drew collection on their shelf. <laughs> what an odd thing to have. So Nancy that's a, that's Drew a, yeah. and the burning candle mystery. I know this one. <laughs> Well, isn't that so fun too? It's like it 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 highlights that one line. It like highlights the superficiality of some of their you know stuff. Oh, yeah. You know that just, waste, I thought just it was delivers really good. that line brilliantly. Oh, she's so good. So good. I love Christine Baranski when she says she's opening a bottle of champagne. She holds it between her legs yeah. and she says, "I'm not exactly maternal," and then pops the cork. <laughs> of course, it gushes everywhere. <laughs> I was like, "Okay, that was good. That was good." Yeah, having then, fun, Elaine. Having right. fun. <laughs> And then I just, I, I don't know why this bit just made me laugh so much, but it was, I just thought perfect when Senator Keeley goes on this monologue about the different states, you know, of course, Virginia, the colors are this and like the colors of the states and, <laughs> and just the, just like, he's just going on and on like this meandering thoughts about traveling across America and everybody is just like trying to deal with other things. That was so just it was so cleverly done because it was so random and dull, yet completely mesmerizing. And with Gene Hackman doing it, I was just wholly entertained by it. <laughs> it was so good. Every and every one of them trying to give him a compliment as uh, as they try to stand up and go do other things. Right. Uh, it's just it perfectly, uh, perfectly written bit of yeah. comedy. Good stuff. Yeah. Good stuff. You, you want to talk a little bit about getting a maid? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, we have Mike Nichols and Elaine May. This is uh, this was kind of a, a big moment for the two of them. Uh, Elaine May and Mike Nichols, back in, I want to say, the 50s, they actually had a kind of... A, kind of were part of a comedy troupe, the Compass Players, and then they uh, became a duo, and it was just kind of the Nichols and May comedy team, and they were just so funny, and it was the two of them. And they ended up uh, kind of calling it quits about after about 10 years of, of working together, I think. And, uh, and, well, I think four years working together, just the two of them, but before that in the other troupe. And then they called it quits because I, I think Mike Nichols was just afraid of like a lot of the improv and, and wasn't, uh, didn't feel as good with it. And, and it, it kind of was rough on their relationship. This was the first time that they worked together uh, 30 in 35 years. And so it was uh, Nichols had said at the time that they split they had this breakup he said i didn't know what i was or who i was and then 35 years later when this came around he said it was like coming home like getting a piece of yourself back that you thought you'd lost uh, he said that may had been very important to him from the moment he first saw her adding that for her improv was innate and a few people have that gift and so they did this together and then the very next year they did uh, primary colors together and she was uh, nominated for an oscar for her writing on that film so it was great seeing her name pop up with this one. I didn't know that she adapted this script, so I was thrilled to see the two of these uh, people back together. I need to consult some of their early comedy. It just uh, It's one of those things when people say things like this, Nichols and May are perhaps the most ardently missed of all the satirical comedians of their era. When Nichols and May split up, they left no imitators, no descendants, no blueprints or footprints to follow, no one could touch them. 
Gerald Nachman. That's a heck of a plug. Yeah, right? Jeez. Ugh, I miss Mike Nichols. Hello, Arthur. This is your mother. Do you remember me? <laughs> Mom, I was just going to call you. Is that a funny thing? You know that I had my hand Arthur, on the phone. you were was... supposed to call uh, me last uh, Friday. Mother, honey, I know. I just didn't have a second and I could cut my Arthur, throat. I was. I sat I... by that phone uh, all day Friday. Uh, honey, I was working. I and just all have... day Friday night. Darling, I was in the lab. And all and I... day Saturday. Mom, I, I and all the... day Sunday. Mom, And I... your father finally said to me, Phyllis, eat something, you'll faint. I said, no, Harry, no. I don't want my mouth to be full when my son calls. Stephen Sondheim um, was asked to do some music for the film, some of the songs. And so he only wrote one song for the film, and it's called Little Dream. That's the song that Albert is rehearsing with the the guy who's chewing gum. Um, but the other two songs, it was when Starina first comes out, the song was called Can That Boy Foxtrot. That was actually a song from Follies that Sondheim had written that uh, it had been cut, and so they used it here. Likewise, when Catherine and Armand are singing in her office about kind of one of the songs that they first met when they were dancing together, they uh, it was a song called Love is in the Air, and that actually was intended to be the opening number for A Funny Thing Happened on the way to the forum. I will oh. say Comedy Tonight was probably the better choice. <laughs> yeah. But still, I love that uh, they found a way to kind of work some of these old Sondheim bits into the film. Hey, you said the words opening number, and it reminded me that one of my notes was, can we talk about that awesome helicopter to whatever shot in the beginning? That was good. It worked really nicely. Just like the the previous film, and we didn't even talk about yeah. the last film, we always love talking about long opening shots, and in La Caja Fall, that begins with, I had written it down, I think it was a full uh, three minutes, a long take single shot going you know, through the crowds, uh, into right. the club, all the way up onto the stage, and they did a great uh, kind of uh, matching of that here. Yeah, and this one, this one, you you start out over the water, and you're right, coming yeah. in over the over the boardwalk, and then through the front doors into the club, through the club, uh, and and up onto it the is stage with up the dancers, onto the stage. Yeah. Oh, it's great! It's yeah. just just great. How did do an award season, Andrew? It was you know it was for comedy. I think it uh, did well for itself. Seven wins, twenty five other nominations. Over at the Oscars, it was nominated for Best Art Direction Set Decoration, but it did lose to The English Patient, which was a big one at the time. The Golden Globes, it was nominated for Best Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy, lost to Evita. And Best Performance by an Actor in a Comedy or Musical, Nathan Lane, he lost to Tom Cruise for Jerry Maguire. You know, <laughs> so far, I, I'm not complaining about any of these losses. Yeah, I know. At the SAG Awards, it did win for Outstanding Performance by a Cast. Hank Azaria was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. So was Nathan Lane. I believe because the SAG Awards, they only you can only pick one actor to be the lead. And so I think that's probably why Nathan Lane is in there with Hank Azaria. Both of them, of course, lost to Cuba Gooding Jr., Show Me the Money, Jerry Maguire. Air dry, Jerry. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. How about the box office? Mike Nichols' adaptation of the play and Weber's original film cost $31 million to make, which is $50.5 million in today's dollars. The movie was released March 8th, 1996, opposite Fargo, Hellraiser Bloodline, Homeward Bound 2, Lost in San Francisco, and If Lucy Fell. Weekend <laughs> full of surprises. 
The movie opened in the number one spot, which it held for four straight weeks. It went on to have a hugely successful run, earning $124 million domestically and $61.2 million internationally for a total of $301.9 million in today's dollars. That leaves it with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $2.1 million. Pretty strong, but nowhere near as strong as the original's profit-to-cost ratio. That one earned 18.5 times its budget. This one, only six times. Only six? Cry me a river. (laughs) Yep. I'm sure the studio has called it a loss. All right. Yeah, right. (laughs) Uh, This uh, movie, it was just a delight to revisit. uh, And I'm so glad that you have now seen it. I feel like you've you've become a man. Uh, (laughs) Thank you, Francis Weber. let (laughs) Let us take it to the mat. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and you will see the list of all the movies that we've talked about on this very show. There are so, so many of them. But don't worry, if you swipe over in your show notes and you tap the word flickchart, you will be taken directly to this movie in the lovely flickchart catalog where you can add it to your list and see how it stands up against ours. First up, we have The Birdcage or from our recent Agnieszka Holland series, In Darkness. <laughs> the Birdcage, please. Boy, I tell you, I would say In Darkness is the better film. Um, but it's a dark film to watch. And I don't mean necessarily the light. It's just a tough story. Yeah. Um, I have more issues with the birdcage. Dan Futterman doesn't help. I am still going to say the birdcage, though. There you go. That's the spirit. The birdcage or time crimes. Time crimes. 100%. Um, okay. Time crimes. That's weird. That's a great one. The birdcage or night of the living dead. Ooh, night of the living dead, please. This is the 1968. Sorry, I forgot, uh. Yeah, uh, I'll say Night of Living Dead, naturally. The Birdcage or Hero? Ooh. Um, mm. God, we've talked about a lot of really good movies. I gotta say Hero. Yeah, Hero. Ugh. So good. The Birdcage or Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. Sweeney uh, Todd, come on, give Sweeney me some easy Todd, ones. Right? The Birdcage or Lethal Weapon? Lethal Weapon. Oh, lethal for weapon. crying out loud. The Birdcage or Life of the Party? Life of the Party, please. Birdcage. <laughs> that that sounded like pure spite when you said that. <laughs> okay. I just want it on the record that I have fought for it at least a little bit. <laughs> All right, here we go. You ready? Yes. One, One two, two, three. three. Scissors. Rock. Fine. Life fine. of the party takes it. It's fine. It's on the record. You fought for it. <laughs> the birdcage or creep show. Creep show for me. Um... Uh, all right, creep show. The birdcage or La Cage Fall? The birdcage. I will. Yeah, you will too. I am too. I'm going to say the birdcage. 225 on our chart. 225 out of 452. That puts uh, both of these films pretty much right at the 50% mark. I have a feeling we're going to have a lot crazy. of run-ins between the two of them. Well, and that's fine. I... Uh, I struggle with that because it, it definitely performed higher on my own list. It didn't run into any of the films that we just had to battle against. <laughs> uh, or I would have had some more questions, I think. Um, but uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. How did it end up on your list? Um, it did better. As, as you know, La Caja Fall really suffered by hitting some things that I just could not vote against and so it fell to 21 percent. this film did much better it actually fared really relatively similarly to how it did here it landed at 2173 out of 4337 which is pretty close to that 50 percent mark as well 
Uh, I came in at 251 out of 1448, which is 83%. Uh, performed very well in that uh, first ranking. And it was really funny because the first time I, I went back and looked at where I had it ranked, and for some reason it was it should have come up as a two-star. I don't know oh, what wow. the last time I ranked it, it was disastrous. And this time it should be at 83%. If I'm to go by the algorithm, it should be over at uh, four stars at letterbox.com slash the next reel. Um, how's that hit you? Where are you going to put it? Uh, and you gave La Caja Fall four stars as well. I did. I did. Yeah. This one's and a three I, star, just like La, like La Caja Fall. I, they're both, I think, on par with each other. So I'm okay with it at a three stars and a like. All right. Well, I'm going to stick with four stars and a like, but it, it technically it's probably a 4.2. <laughs> okay. I'm glad. I'm glad count, we're getting technical. Put, count, count that. Make sure that's included. Okay. <laughs> thanks. In the math. That's right. I'm very well. well, this was a really fun way to start us now on this Francis Weber series, Andy. Where do we go from here? Yeah, it was a nice little way to kick us off. We're going to be jumping to a much later film in his career. And, and in fact, after both of these films, we're going to be jumping to 1998 and we're going to be looking at Le Dinner de Con or Dinner for not cons not something not a little cons, not nice people <laughs> well, yeah, something a little worse so dinner of cons oh, the and french we'll and their be, profanity that's right <laughs> and then we'll be finishing up that half with uh, dinner for schmucks so outstanding when the movie ends our conversation begins Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always doeth. Yeah, there are a lot of people who wanted to, to uh, have their way with Amazon over the performance of, well, Amazon and then this movie. <laughs> yes, there were. We did manage to scrape from the bottom of the barrel a couple of reviews uh, that rep that are representative of the whole. Let's just say that. And I don't mean <laughs> H-O-L-E. <laughs> Uh, I have one. It's a little bit longer. Can I do you, I think can I can I do it? Kick it off. All right. Amazon customer. This was back in February 20th, 1999. Said boring with a lot of O's. Just imagine all the O's. I can't believe this movie is so well known. I guess it all has to do with the subject matter and not the movie. People think, wow, drag queens, it must be funny. I don't think I laughed more than twice during the entire ordeal. When this movie wasn't boring, it was sentimental. Robin Williams does his usual mugging one moment and cries the next. I hated the character of the selfish, bossy son, the way everyone bends to his every whim. I can understand the character of Albert being a little whiny and needy, but he was just overdone by Nathan Lane. The whole thing was just too stereotypical to me. It could have used a little slapstick or some true absurdity. All caps. There are much better mistaken identity type films out there. So much. There was, that is what, what I've heard about the birdcage is that there's not enough absurdity in it. Mistaken identities. Yeah. Exciting. I didn't you realize didn't... it was a spy movie that I was actually watching. Well, you were mistaken. <laughs> Apparently so. <laughs> About all the identities. 
What do you got? I've got a one star by Wolfgang Richter. Uh, Wolfgang Richter says, cancellation of Birdcage movie. Uh, oh, please cancel my order of Birdcage. I could not judge the movie because it did not have a trailer. I watched it for seven minutes only. Thanks, Wolfgang Richter. <laughs> that was interesting. I need to open a note because we have a new character of Wolfgang. <laughs> I can't believe he showed up here. Yeah, I don't know how often he'll show up. But Did he post his uh, social security number? <laughs> Did he post any other identifying information? Sounds like he needs help. Yeah, poor Wolfgang. He's do you know not what we should sure do next? Communicate with Amazon. I think our next gig, when we're done with this whole podcasting thing, when it's just sort of run its course, it will eventually run its course. So let's say you and me, another couple of years, we start being the Robin Hood customer service advocates for people who feel like they've been betrayed by Amazon.com. Wow. I think that's what we're going to do. That's heavy. Let's do it. I'm totally in. But only people who are, have reviews that are over five years old. <laughs> right. Thanks, Amazon. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Okay, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season nine, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. Ooh, this should be fun. <laughs> we're starting with the big series, Robin Hood. <laughs> well, I mean, aren't they all based on some Robin Hood story in one way or another? Yes, but any idea which specifically? Uh, well, I'd say uh, Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, the silent one, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, that terrible 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood, they're all based on, I would say, probably the same standard tale. Robin and Marion, I would say, is probably based on a different take. Uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, too. Oh, God, I can't believe I forgot that one. Okay, how about Spike Lee? Uh, aren't they all original? No, not one we covered this season. It's a biopic. Oh, Black Klansman. Can't believe I forgot that. We have covered so many great movies that all started as books. Books like The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Europa Europa, Spore, or Arsenic and Old Lace. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. Mm -hmm. 